Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7. We're going to spend some time here and then we're going to be in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Uh, I entitled this sermon, uh, Loving Those Who Differ From You. Loving Those Who Differ From You. We live in a day where there are so many uh, people that uh, see things differently, they act differently than we do, and... um, I don't think we handle it too well sometimes. So, so what we want to do is to go back to God's word to figure out how it is that we're supposed to deal with people in a loving and gracious way. Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And would you turn with me as well to 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's read verses 4 through following. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. May the Lord add a blessing to his reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we are uh, venturing down a path to figure out ways to love one another who differs from us. Father, we are going to deal with people that are involved in sinful conduct in their lives. We're going to deal with people that have sincere convictions that differ from us. Lord, there is a way biblically to work through this. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes uh, to your word. I pray that you would open our hearts, Father. Remind us of the gospel, the gospel that saves us. Remind us that we have been forgiven by you and freed by the gospel and help us to offer that to one another for the glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, Ken Sandy gives an illustration of a woman Um, who was going in for surgery, um, uh, minor surgery. And she put in the offering box in the back a little card to say to the pastoral staff that, guess what, I'm going in for surgery the next day. So it went into the offering box. She listed it for the pastoral staff. What ended up happening was um, she went in for the surgery, and she was expecting her pastor to come. Her pastor never showed up. She was a little annoyed. So what she ended up doing was she ended up calling the church secretary. 
spoke with the church secretary. Church secretary said, yep, pastor's at the hospital right now visiting a couple of people. She was even more frustrated now. Wait a minute. Pastor didn't come to see me. And now she was indignant, you know, and she is going through day after day after she got out of the hospital and she's just rolling this around in her mind, how frustrated she is that pastor had dared not show up to see me in the hospital. So what she ended up doing was she ended up writing a letter and she wrote this letter and talked about his, his um, indifference and how uncaring he was. She actually thought in, his mo- in her mind that the pastor didn't show up because the week before she had suggested that he become more practical in his sermons. So she figured the reason why the pastor didn't show up was because I had given him that critique. So she put that in the letter as well. And she addressed it, stamped it, put it in the mail. Next day, she goes to church. What happens? She goes to church, and one of the deacons runs up to her and says, Mary, please forgive me. I, I am so sorry. Your, off, your, your card went into the offering box, and I mistakenly put it in the wrong file. I just saw it today. Pastor never got an opportunity to look at the letter. And now she's caught. Because she has just all of a sudden made these irrational, judgmental, and harsh statements about pastor. And she wrote the letter, and it's in the mail now. And she can't take it back. Pastor comes up to her, in fact, just at, right after that, and says, you know, Mary, I really appreciate your thoughts about my sermon. I hope you'll see in the sermon today that I'll be a little bit more practical. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of position? Where you have jumped to a conclusion. You've assumed hearts. You have become critical and harsh in your judgment. And all of a sudden, you find out that you're wrong. Matthew 7 gives us principles of how we can deal with people that are going through sinful situations. Romans 14, where we'll spend the bulk of our time at the end, talks about how we deal with people that are going through sincere conflictual differences. They have different conflicts, I mean, different uh, convictions of their heart and life. So let's look the first in Matthew 7. You know, this is the one verse, Matthew 7, 1, when I read it. Did you catch it? It's the one verse that most people, even non-believers, know, right? Judge not, right? They stamp that up there. That's the only verse in the Bible that they know. It used to be John 3, 16. Now it's, it's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, right? The sign goes up, but then they start judging you. So it's just kind of funny. It's kind of backwards. Jesus says, judge not, that you not be judged. So do we stop there? I had a former teacher from our college, uh, and he was also a pastor of ours, uh, Pastor Mel Dahl. And he had, this, he had this statement. He said, context is king. And what he was saying is this, that you, you can't just pull one verse out of context. You have to read the verse within its context. So is Jesus saying that all judgment is wrong? Let's see. No, he's not. He's not saying that. He says, judge not that you not be judged. But then he tells you what makes wrong judgment. For the judgment, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. What he is saying is this, that there is, there is right ways to judge and wrong ways to judge. 
I hope today you're going to get an idea of what appropriate judgment is biblically and what inappropriate or judgmental conduct is. Well, Jesus says the first thing is that we're the measure that you're using. More often than not, the reason why we have conflicts today is because we have assumed things, we judge people's motives, we judge people's hearts, or we use our own standard of measure rather than the standard of God's word. We start with the other person rather than starting with ourselves, and inevitably that's going to lead us down the wrong path. Jesus said this, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured against you. The standard that you're using to judge somebody else, you're ultimately going to be judged by that same standard. And now he tells you how you can judge appropriately. First, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? But pay no attention to that you got a two-by-four sticking out of your own. It's kind of crazy when you sit down and think about it. That, that I've got this two-by-four, and how in the world am I even going to get close enough to be able to deal with the speck that's in your eye? That two-by-four is keeping me from being even close to you, and it's obscuring my vision. And Jesus says, make sure that you're using a measure, a right measure, and make sure that you deal with yourself. You confront yourself first. As I look at the log that's in my own eye, in verse 4, he says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? And then he gets kind of brash. He says, you are a hypocrite. I don't like being called a hypocrite. Fake acting is, in essence, what a hypocrite is. First, take the log out of your own eye. Why? What Jesus is saying is that I need to look at the things that are in my own life, the sins that are in my own life, the conflicts that are happening deep within, the things that are causing me to be rash, the things that are causing me to be prejudicial, the things that are causing me to judge you. I need to deal with those in my own life. There may be sin in my own life that's obscuring my ability to see you clearly. In fact, maybe I'm not seeing you accurately. So what Jesus says is this, first deal with the junk that's in your own life. That's pretty easy, right? And then he says, you will see clearly to take the speck of your own eye, your brother's eye. So once I've dealt with the sin that's in my own life, now I can go out and deal with the sin that's in a brother's life. There's a catechism. It's the Westminster Catechism. And in their shorter catechism, it starts with the very first question. Catechisms, unfortunately, Protestant churches have gone away from it, right? Um, but catechisms are question and answers. They teach doctrine. And in this, doc- in this catechism, it talks about, um, first one is, what is the chief end of man? And then you would answer, the chief end of man is to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 10.31, says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So the catechism, the writers of the catechism said that if you look at your life, whether it comes down to your thoughts, your words, your attitudes and actions, they need to be reflecting God. They need to be resembling him. They need to be showing out his grace. So when you go to somebody else who is sinning, the first thing I need to do is, am I really glorifying God in the way I think? In my words, in my attitudes, in my actions, and the reality is oftentimes I will find no. And then Jesus says, then once you've identified that, then now take the log out of your own eye. And what do we do with that? When you identify sin in your life, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to be dealing with the sins that are in my own life that are hindering my relationship with you and will hinder my relationship with God. And when I do that, Proverbs 19, 11 gives me a sense that there are times that this offense that you've committed against me is really not that big a deal. That I can overlook this minor offense. That this is not that significant because I've dealt with the clarity issue. I could start to see this thing clearly. Peter got the same thing. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. That there's this element that's there in my heart that I just have been loved by God, forgiven by God, graced by God through the gospel, and now I want to pour that out to you. But I'm only going to see that once I've gotten the obscurity out of my eyes, once I've gotten that, that vision removed. You ever notice that you have a tendency to gossip or slander or backbite? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, God gives us some really good counsel through, through um, the Apostle Paul. In verse 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is, what? Good for the building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, so Jesus is telling us that you know, when you deal with conflict in your life and when you're dealing with somebody that is struggling and you see the sin that's in their life, step number one is that I need to, I need to go in a level of humility. I need to start with my own heart and my life, not you. I need to make sure that the measure that I'm using is a biblical measure, not just my own personal opinion. I need to deal with the sin that's in my life, and I need to confess that sin. I need to repent of that sin. And now if that sin, once that sin has been dealt with in my life, now I can start to see your issues a little bit more clearly. And if it's, if it's small and insignificant, I can overlook that. And I need to make sure that I am not slandering this person or backbiting them or gossiping about them. And what do I do? In Matthew 18, if you get an opportunity this afternoon, Jesus lays out a criteria for how you deal with a brother who sinned against you. And it's, it's very clear, step-by-step -step process. He says, in step number one, you just go to you and your brother alone. Another believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you go to them one-on-one -on -one and you confront them about the sin. And even there, you're charitable in it. And you try to give them the benefit of the doubt, remembering 1 Corinthians 13. You give them the benefit of the doubt and you confront this sin and you say, brother, I believe that you've sinned against me in this particular way, Matthew 18. And now what happens? You go with a heart of, of grace and you've confronted yourself and you've dealt with the logs in your own eye and you go with a heart of forgiveness. You go with a desire to reconcile and you confront this brother in love. And if this brother hears you, guess what? You've won your brother over, Matthew 18 says. That's great. Now we can go off in fellowship. But what happens if the brother doesn't hear you? 
Jesus gives a second step that we do. Now what I do is I bring one or two others, spiritually mature people, not just people that are going to be on my side, people that are spiritually mature that can help me to see if I'm wrong in my approach to you. And now that person comes together. These two people come together with us and we confront. I can consistently go with the idea of um, my heart is dealing with the logs in my own eye. I also am going there with a heart of forgiveness. I'm going there with a desire for reconciliation. And I'm going there open to hearing the counsel of this one or two other people. And if this person hears me, guess what? I've won my brother over. But then only after that, you bring it before the elders. But even there, to bring it before the elders, Matthew 18 tells us, it's not to shame this person. It's not to demean this person. It's not to make them feel low. It's because you care about them so desperately and you're afraid of the sinful conduct that's in their life and you want to hear the gospel graces going into their lives. Can you imagine what would happen if our relationships started to follow just those principles? That I I come to you humbly, not in pride, I come to you with a biblical standard, not my opinion. I I come to you speaking love, not gossip and slander. I come to you one-on-one, not on Facebook or Twitter. I can't tell you how many times you see people arguing over Facebook and Twitter. It's just ridiculous. And they bring the world into the situation rather than dealing with this person one-on-one. You deal with a person one-on-one. And then when that doesn't happen, you bring somebody who's spiritually mature to help you work through this. And then only then you bring it before the elders. And we're there to try to restore them so that there could be unity once again in the body. What would our marriages look like? What would our communities look like if we, if we dealt with life in that particular way? So if the offense is, is too great, then guess what? I, I need to go to you. But as 1 Corinthians tells us, we go in love. Did you hear it as I read 1 Corinthians 13? Charitable judgments. I believe the best. Hope the best. I am believing that you don't really mean this. I am believing that you're not really trying to hurt me. I am believing the best about you. But we do exactly the opposite today. We believe the worst about people. Actually, we're more charitable to ourselves and more condemning towards others. It's a major dilemma that happens in society and to our our relationships. So as we go with these charitable judgments, we approach this person in love, we approach this person in kindness, and we are hoping to help them to see that they may be off base. So what keeps us from giving loving judgment to others? What do you think is it? What are the things that hinder me from being loving loving in my judgments to others? Sandy, Ken Sandy in his book on the peacemaker gave a series of principles, great book, gave a series of motives that may be in my heart that may be hindering me from giving you loving judgment. Can I give you some? The first is pride. That deep down in our hearts, we elevate ourselves. We tend to condemn others. We put ourselves above somebody else and we look down on them in pride. And if we have pride in our hearts, it's going to hinder the ability to come across humbly to this person. What else hinders us giving loving judgments to others? Second is self-righteousness. Jesus had to deal with this with the Pharisees. 
You remember there were times where Jesus was healing people and the Pharisees would come and start to condemn him. And even on one occasion, they actually said that he was acting, acting as an agent of Satan, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was judging. And in their self-righteousness, they were condemning the God of love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we struggle with critical judgments because we're insecure. We struggle with a lack of confidence ourselves. We struggle with a belief about ourselves. And now we need to feel that somebody else is beneath me. Sometimes we struggle with critical judgments because we're jealous. We really just don't like the fact that this person has gotten something good and I want something better. And so now I'm jealous of them. Or sometimes it's self-pity. I feel bad about myself. That's actually a form of pride, believe it or not that I feel down about myself and I'm constantly beating up myself and now I'm going to be judging everybody else around. Sandy goes on to tell us that prejudice is also a way that we may be hindering godly judgments. That deep down in our heart, I have these preconceived, unfavorable opinions of people just because they're different than me. Some of you in this room struggle with unforgiveness. Somebody has done something to you a week ago, a month ago, a decade ago, and you struggle with letting it go. And you're constantly reminding yourself of how this person has sinned against you. But we sing, you know, the power of the cross this morning, but in life and in practicality, we don't live it. Because if the power of the cross can forgive me of all of my sins, past, present, and future, how is it that I can hold on in bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness for the sins that others have done to me. He gives one last thing. He says this, that the ultimate source of critical judgment is a lack of love. My love is deficient. I become critical in my judgments because I stop loving you. Do you find yourself in that position at all? Do you find yourself at a time where, you know what, God, I know, I know, I struggle with this. I, I can be so critical. I can complain. I can assume. I can make these judgments. Lord, please forgive me. Well, God says I can change you. And he uses this principle of put off and put on. He says, I want you to confess. Confess means to agree with me that what you're doing is wrong. That's what he wants us to do. It's to go vertical. Forget about horizontal right now. Go vertical. Lord, please forgive me. And then what he says is that I need to repent. Repent means to change my mind and change my direction. I need to change where I was going. I was going one direction, now I need to go a different direction. In my confession and in my repentance, what God is going to do is to help you to put off some of these things. How about put off your selfishness? How about start to serve the person that you're upset with? How about put off your pride and put on humility? Put off your self-righteousness and cling to the righteousness of Christ alone. How about put off your insecurity and find your confidence in Christ that he loves you and he accepts you and forgives you. Put off your jealousy and recognize that I don't have to covet anymore because I've gotten everything I need in Christ. I put off my self-pity and I turn to the fact that I'm content with you. I put off my prejudice and I tolerate other people. I put off my unforgiveness and recognize that I've been forgiven by God so I can forgive you. And I put off my self-love by loving people. What would happen with our relationships if that became the standard of how we live? Okay, James. So 
you've laid out for me what I deal with when I'm dealing with my own sin or somebody else's sin. Turn with me to Romans 14 and just pull out a couple of principles before we end about how I deal with not sinful conduct, but sincere convictions that there are going to be some people in this room, maybe your wife, maybe your son, maybe your daughter, maybe your friend, maybe your coworker, that have sincere convictional differences than you, but they're not sin. How do you deal with those? Romans 14 gives us how I deal with it. I'll give you the backdrop of what's happening in Romans 14, and then I'll pull out some principles. After Paul has written this incredible letter, it's one of my favorite books, actually, is my favorite book of the scriptures. Um, he pulls out this incredible gospel message right from the beginning. And he talks about the fact that this world is sinful and fallen, that even if you're religious, we are fallen outside of God. And then he pronounces this incredible gospel message, and he says that you are justified by God in Christ, and that you were in Adam, but now you have been justified and you're set free. And then he gets into this idea of sanctification, that I need to grow in faith and grow in faith by the work of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is worked out in my life. And then he deals with Israel and the future uh, kingdom, not, verses 9, 10, and 11. And then he gets practical. He says, if this is the gospel and what the gospel message is, now let me get practical. And Romans 12 through the end is about how you live in a gospel community. And you remember Romans 12, 1. He says, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And then Romans 12, he talks about love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And he goes through a number of practical principles in 12. Now he gets to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, he is dealing with this issue of food and different days and fellowshipping on different days. So what happened in this culture was this. There was a temple worship that used to happen. And in the temple worship, what we would do is people would bring animals and sacrifice these animals in the temple worship. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 8, if you want to read later on. And so in this temple worship, what would happen is I would bring this sacrifice, um, this animal to be sacrificed, kill the animal, and that animal would then be left over to be sold for people to eat. There were some that grew up in that time period that said, I cannot eat that animal that was sacrificed in the temple to a false idol. Now, the Bible's argument is that all food is clean. You can eat it. You're free. But this person's personal conviction is, I cannot do it. So that's what's happening in Romans 14. What do you do if I am acting in a level of freedom that I can eat this meat, but you're acting in a level where I am convicted that it can't? Colin Smith, he's a pastor, he gave a, a great illustration. He says, um, these two people, uh, John and Mary, are going out for a date. John asked Mary out for a date. And so now they go to this restaurant. And John lives in freedom. And in his freedom, he says that, you know what, I can eat whatever I want. So John orders a T-bone steak, right? That would probably be me, medium rare. Nice baked potato, I haven't had that in a while. Uh, nice baked potato, asparagus, oh, okay. Now Mary over here 
is personally convicted that meat is wrong. So John and Mary are sitting there. Mary orders a salad. Well, John is saying, I've got my credit card. You can order whatever you want off that menu. Mary says, I, I, I can't. I feel personally convicted that I can't. Romans 14 kind of lays out two principles, how you handle the situation. So let's look. As for the one who is weak in the faith, we'll call her Mary. Welcome her, him, but not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes that they may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so Mary's over here eating her salad. John is over here eating the T-bone steak. So step number one in the process is that if this is not about a sinful conduct, if this is only about sincere conviction, step number one is that you need to welcome them, accept them, be gracious to them. And as you, as you welcome them and accept them, they differ from you. That's okay. Don't quarrel over personal opinion. I've told you multiple times that in my counseling office, most people argue over personal convictions and preferences, not absolutes. And these fights that are happening between people are on low-level personal convictions versus the absolutes of God's word, and it's wrong. It's wrong. So step number one is welcome those who differ. We'll get to step number two in verses three and four. Don't look down on the sincere convictions of another person who differ from you. Don't look down on them, verses three through four. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? So step number two in this process is not only do I welcome them and I'm not going to fight over insignificant issues, I'm also not going to pass judgment upon you. I'm not going to condemn you and look down on you because of your convictions. And I'm not going to judge you for eating steak. Why? Because God has welcomed them. When you're doing this, it's so important to have the right spirit. D.A. Carson put it this way. Be strict with yourself, be generous with others. I like that quote. Be strict with yourself, be generous with others. See, this is just a personal conviction or preference. And Mary and John differ, but that's okay. We could still fellowship with one another. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. That gives us to point number three. Each person must fully be fully convinced in their conscience themselves. Verse five must be fully convinced in their conscience. One person esteems one day as better than the other. They also had fights over questions over different holidays, holy days. While others esteem all days alike, each one should be what? Fully convinced in his own mind. That your personal conviction may not be mine, that's okay. You can have it. We're not talking about the gospel here. We're not talking about the absolutes. We're not talking about the essentials. We're talking about peripheral issues. We fight over those things. You be convinced about steak. I'll be convinced about my salad. We can go off in harmony. <laughs> oh, man, what would happen if we actually did that? One more principle I want you to consider. Verses 6 through 9. Assume the best about them. Assume the best about them. The one who observes the day observes it in the what? Honor of the Lord. 
And the one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord. And since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord. For none of us is to live to himself, and none of us is to die to himself. For if we live, and if we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, we will live, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. See, see, if I can recognize that you may differ from me on some levels of personal conviction, that's okay. But are you doing it for the glory of God? So step number one, I've got to get to a place where I need to recognize, is there a difference between a sinful conduct on this person's part? And if it is, I need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew, that I need to be humble, I need to keep the measure of biblical standards, I need to look with myself first, and then I need to lovingly approach you. If it is about personal conviction, not a sinful conduct, but it is a sincere conviction, then how do I approach you? I welcome you. I talk to you about my opinion, but I allow you to live out your opinion, and you allow me to live out mine. And what will I do? A little bit later on in the chapter, the relationship will be about edification. Because I think Mary needs to hear that salad is not the only thing she has to eat. She could eat anything. And John could help her to see that. So let's end with the conclusion. The date. Remember the date? I got John over here who's got his T-bone steak, medium rare, baked potato with butter. No sour cream. I don't like sour cream. And, and uh, cheese? Cheese. Uh, um, lactose intolerant. Um, and asparagus. And we've got Mary over here with her salad. So let's say, let's say John pressures Mary to get the steak pressures her and brings some level of condemnation upon her. And Mary, to get John off her back, yields, to her, con- yields her conscience and eats the steak. The Bible actually says that she's sinned. She's gone against her own conscience. And she is doing this just to people please. So John should not be convincing Mary to give up her convictions here, her conscience. What happens over here if Mary, I think I have them on the wrong side, um, if Mary was eating the salad and looks down at John and says, you can't be a Christian and vote that way. I'm sorry, no, eat that way. <laughs> you can't be a Christian and eat that, salad, uh, eat that meat. I, can't, I don't even know if you're a believer. You better not take that communion this morning. And then John Okay, all right. And so now he submits to Mary. So what has he done? He's given up his freedom. In Galatians 5, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if he wants to submit and eat the salad because he doesn't want to offend Mary, that's fine. But if he is submitting because out of, out of conscience and he's starting to feel guilty, he's failing. So, Mary should not eat the steak just because John says it. John should not give up the steak just because Mary says it. So how do we live? She eats her steak. She eats her salad. He eats the steak. And now John uses an opportunity down the road to help her to see that the scriptures don't see this as sinful. And here's, here's why. And, and you could eat your vegetables if you want, but I, I can tell you, you have freedom. 
And as you deal with these personal convictions and preferences, you give the idea, you give them the idea of how you see things. And now what do you do? You're edifying the body. So can I give you one last thing and we'll end? So let's go back to that first illustration I gave you. Remember the woman who was going to have a surgery the next day and the pastor didn't show up? So now what happens if she got so ticked off that she just left the church? She didn't make it right with the pastor. She just left. How can she possibly grow? She can't. See, it's within the body of believers that we can grow. See, God changes people through what? Vital relationships. So, so what she needs to do is to confess to God, Lord, please forgive me, and repent to God, and then she should go to the pastor before he gets that letter in the mail and say, I need to, I need to confess that I failed. And please forgive me and make it right. Deal with the log in her own eye. And over here with John and Mary, help her to see that maybe she's living in bondage and she could have some level of freedom. So whether it's a sinful choice or whether it's sincere convictions, you go with the gospel. You've been infinitely loved and totally accepted, completely forgiven. Live in the freedom that God has granted you. Preach that freedom. Live that freedom in your marriages. Live that freedom as, as parents. Live that freedom at church. Live that freedom at work. To end, um, Ken Sandy also in his book gave this, this poem. I just want to read it to you before we end. Help me, Lord, to judge rightly. Lord, help me to judge others as I want them to judge me. Charitably, not critically, privately, not publicly, gently, not harshly, in humility, not pride. Help me to believe the best about others until facts prove otherwise, to assume nothing, to seek all sides of the story, and to judge no one until I've removed the log from my own eye. May I never bring the law to find fault and condemnation. Help me always to bring the gospel to give hope and deliverance as you, my judge, my friend, have so graciously done for me. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to um, deal with the sinful conduct in our own lives. Lord, we have this terrible tendency to magnify the sins in others and minimize them in ourselves. Lord, we have this tendency to be so severe with others and so gracious to ourselves when it should be exactly the opposite. Father, I should be confronting myself and judging myself in light of your law and then clinging to your son's gospel grace. But Father, I pronounce judgment on people. I convict people. And Father, sad to say there are times that I've elevated my own sincere convictions and preferences to sound like they are your absolutes. Lord, please forgive me. Forgive us here in this room if we've done that. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see with humble eyes, not pride. Help us to measure ourselves by your word, not our opinion. Help us to reach out to people in need with the gospel and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.